0: Psalms chapter number fifty, Psalm fifty, if you will. I understand, tonight I many of you will probably be a little bit more tired towards the end of this service as you've lost your hour and you gained it this morning. But now, as we get closer to nighttime, it's kind of like we're going to be letting out about eight fifty, and some of that's probably past your bedtime a little bit. So, I'll try to be conscious of that, and it probably won't affect the way I preach, but I'll definitely remain conscious of that particular fact. But Psalm chapter number 50, this evening we've been speaking on this subject of thanksgiving. And the reason for the series was because I feel like we place an emphasis, a great emphasis, and it's definitely a noble one, on being thankful, but we do it as if one week a year is enough. And so I wanted to preach a a series leading up to thanksgiving that might remind us thanksgiving should just flow naturally from the life and the heart of a Christian. A Christian that's full of gratitude towards God can't help but overflow with thanksgiving to God. And so that is the purpose of the series and I hope it's been a blessing to you so far. Uh, Psalm chapter 50 this evening we continue. The Bible says this, The mighty God even the Lord hath spoken. Now that's one kind of an introduction right there. The mighty God, even the Lord hath spoken. We better listen when God speaks. And that's what I believe Asaph is trying to do here. He's trying to call our attention. He's saying, the mighty God, even the Lord hath spoken. And called the earth from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof. Out of Zion the perfection of beauty God hath shined. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour, devour before him. And it shall be very tempestuous round about him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his People, Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice, and the heavens shall declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself, Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. Now that's the same mighty God that verse 1 tells us about. When God speaks, we better listen. O Israel, and I will testify against thee. Now, not only is God judge here, but now He is testifying against the nation of Israel. He says, I am God, even thy God. There's a credible witness indeed. He is God. He knows all. And He's not going to lie. It's God is the witness that's testifying. And He says, I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to to have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. And I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, verse 12 says, I would not tell thee. For the world is mine, and the fullness thereof. Verse number 12, he's saying, if I needed something... I would not need you to gather it for me. We feel sometimes as if God is just waiting on people to act. But God can figure out a way if people choose not to act. And he's saying, Israel, you think that everything that I am and everything that I do depends upon you. And he's saying, I'm just telling you right now, I am self-sufficient apart from you. You need me much more than I need you. He goes on to say in verse number 13, Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Verse 14 and 15 will be our key passage. Offer unto God thanksgiving, and pay thy vows unto the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. But unto the wicked God saith, What hast thou to do to declare my statutes? Or that thou shouldest take my covenant in thy mouth, seeing thou hatest instruction, and castest my words behind thee. When thou sawest a thief, then thou consentest with him." and hast been partaker with adulterers. Thou givest thy mouth to evil, and thy tongue frameth deceit. Thou sittest and speakest against thy brother. Thou slanderest thine own mother's son. These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. But I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes. Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Verse 23 it ties directly with verse number 14. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. And to him that ordereth his conversation aright, will I show the salvation of God. Now, I was a pretty good kid growing up, if you ask me. Um, you might ask my sister, and she may disagree. You may even ask my parents, but are they really a reliable source of information? But I, I think I was a, a fairly decent kid growing up, and I, I didn't get in a, a, just a lot of trouble, especially trouble that I created on my own. Usually, if I got in trouble, Mandy had something to do with it. Uh, she's not here tonight. I'm sure she's tuning in. I, I'm, I'm just sure. Do they have Wi-Fi on cruise ships? I'm not sure, but either way, uh, I think I was a pretty good kid. And for the most part, I didn't require a lot of spanking, Sure, I got some throughout my life, but I didn't get a whole lot of spankings. But I will say, even though I was not in trouble all the time, I will say this, that you know whether or not you're a novice at getting in trouble or whether you're expert level, like maybe some of you were, you know when your parents mean business. Now I'll say this, to me anyway, dad was the one that gave the worst punishment. But mom was the one who had the worst, we'll call it bark. Like dad had the worst bite, but mom had the worst bark. You say, what do you mean? Well, you just know when mom means business. You just know, just her tone and some of the things that she would say. For instance, I am just fully persuaded that the only reason we have middle names is so that your mother can call them out to take it to the next level I don't I didn't even know how to spell my name until my middle name until middle school but my mom used it on occasion when situations got bad enough she'd say Andrew Nathan that's when it took it up a notch I mean I knew that's when mom meant business you see people's tone matters And in this passage tonight, you cannot help but read it. And see, oozing off of every word, that the tone of God is very serious. And there are many passages in the Bible that we can look at and be excited about and just encouraged about. this one, at least for the majority of the statements made, is not a rosy passage of Scripture. But... We need some of these scriptures. Sometimes when we maybe begin to live a little bit like the children of Israel, we need a passage like this to kind of get our attention. And I can tell you, I never once asked my mother or my father to raise their voice at me, but sometimes I needed it. Tonight we're going to look at a passage. And this passage and this sermon, or my sermon is titled this, When God gets serious. When God gets serious. I want you to see with me, number one, the pronouncement that we find in this passage of Scripture tonight. The pronouncement. Verse number one, it starts off right away. The Bible says, The mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken, and called the earth from the rising of the sun into the going down thereof. This is a psalm of Asaph, and quite early on, he introduces us to the person who was speaking. The person here is the mighty God, even the Lord. There's, first of all, the pronouncement of the judge. Have you ever seen in court, I've never been in too many courts, uh, and never been on trial for anything... But I will say, I've seen on television, and maybe Brother Adam can corroborate, (laughs) because I learned that on Law and Order, but maybe he can validate what I'm trying to say here, but what happens is everybody gets settled into the court and the attorneys are there and then the defendant and the prosecution are there and all the uh, people are there, maybe witnesses and people watching the trial. Maybe if it's a trial by jury, they're, they're all there in the in the trial and you have everybody seated there, but there's one person missing. There's maybe even a bailiff, somebody to kind of enforce what the, uh, the judge wants done. Maybe he's got a keep order in some way, or maybe he's got to take evidence from the, 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 the prosecution or the defendant and hand it to the judge, whatever the case may be. But at the start of the trial, it's not even going yet, but there's one person missing. You know who that is? The judge. And usually the way it begins is this. The bailiff starts and he says something like this. All rise, the Honorable Judge, blah, 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 blah. He doesn't do it quite that way, but you get the idea. If you were to look at this passage of Scripture, that's exactly what Asaph is doing. He is saying, all rise and give reverence and credence. And honor because this is not my words I'm about to give you. This is the word of the mighty God, even the Lord. In fact, if you study it out, L means, or L stands for the mighty one, and it speaks of God simply and absolutely. Uh, The word there, God, is Elohim. It's the same word that is found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, when the Bible says, in the beginning uh, was God. And, And when you see that, it means that God, it speaks of His wisdom and His power. God, Elohim, the mighty God, Asaph says. And then he says, even the Lord, that's the word Yahweh. It speaks of the merciful God who makes covenants. Asaph, before we ever get into the meat of the passage, he starts right off and says, now everybody listen. And everybody rise to the fact that the Lord God Almighty is speaking. The mighty God even The Lord. There's a pronouncement of the judge. I want you to notice, secondly, there's a pronouncement of the judgment. Verse number three, the Bible says, Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. In scripture, fire is seen as the judgment of God. Even when God was revealing Himself to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19... God told Moses he would come. The Bible tells us that Moses told the elders what was going to happen, and they said, Everything that the Lord says we will do, this is good for us. And, and so the, the Lord tells Moses, Moses sanctified the people for two days. And they need to clean them their clothes and they need to clean themselves. And you say, Brother Andrew, why do we come to church dressed nice? Why do we come to make church our, in our best? It's because if we plan to meet God, we ought to sanctify ourselves not only internally but externally it's a scripture it's a scriptural uh, uh, principle that if you want to meet god you might as well honor god both inside and outside and here we find the the fire because on the third day the lord descends upon mount sinai and smoke billows around the mountain as god's presence and his judgment Comes to the mountain. Now, Asaph does not say his judgment is coming from Mount Sinai. In fact, it says that his judgment is coming out of Zion. The Lord presents us here with the judgment. Fire is the emblem of justice in action, and the tempest here is a token of his overwhelming power, Charles Spurgeon said say, Brother Andrew, this is all Old Testament stuff. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Bible says, For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what it goes on to say after this? The Bible says, Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Now I've got good news for you, Christian. Tonight, if you know the Lord Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you will never stand on trial for your sins. Praise God, hallelujah. Because all of us have a ledger a mile long that would condemn us to hell, but praise God, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all transgressions. Amen. But the Bible does say that every believer will stand before God. And the Bible says that we will all present ourselves at the judgment seat of Christ. And that will not be a trial by which our sins are judged, but it will be a trial by which our works and uh, motives are judged. Do You say, what do you mean, Brother Andrew? Well, what God is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is, our works will go into the fire of God's judgment. And His judgment will prove whether what we did here on earth brought Him glory and had eternal significance and was for the purpose of furthering the gospel of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's gold and precious stones and silver. Things that mattered for the cause of the kingdom, that's gold, silver and precious stones. But did you know there's another category, a category of people who will not spend their time as a good steward? A person who doesn't focus on eternal things, but on material things and temporary things. And you know Christians can do that. And the Bible says that those works will be thrown into the very same fire that the precious stones and the gold and the silver were thrown into. But the result will be different because that which matters for eternity will come out as purified and bringing glory to God. But what's wood, hands. and stubble, you know what happens to that in the fire? Burns up. What's done for eternity lasts for eternity. What's done in the temporary lasts for the temporary. The fire represents God's judgment, so we see God as the judge, and we see God's judgment. I want you to notice, and do not miss this, the judged. You see, it would be idiotic for court to convene unless somebody was on trial verse 4 and 5 tells us a very uncomfortable truth, and it is this. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge... What's the next two words there? His people. Gather... What's the next two words there? My saints. Now we can stand in judgment of how wicked our world is getting... Every day, And by the way, our world's not getting more wicked. Our world has always been exceedingly wicked. Whether they're getting more brazen with their wickedness, maybe I'd believe that. But our world has been wicked for centuries. But, but here we find that it's not the sinners in the world on trial. It's not the homosexuals. It's not the liberals or the adulterers or the thieves or the murderers. You know who it is? It's God's people. And you say, well, that doesn't quite seem right. I'll put it to you like this. I've had the privilege to be the youth pastor of this church for now on 27 years. I can't remember exactly how long. I've been married 34 years, but uh, I'm not exactly sure how long. But I'll say this. My expectations... For our church kids is higher than our bus kids. And and you say, Brother Andrew, what do you mean? I'm not saying that I'm dismissing them. But what I'm saying is, our church kids need to behave in church. Our church kids don't need to be passing notes. Our church kids don't need to be, uh, unless it's like, boy, that was a good point by Brother Andrew. Boy, look look at that. They don't need to be texting in church. They don't need to be checking tweets or Instagramming in church, which would be a weird place. Like, hey, chilled. Uh, But it would just be an odd thing. But our church kids, I have higher expectations for the way that they behave in church than I do a bus kid. And I would say that most of you would be in agreement. I will also ask of you that the next time you see a bus kid maybe dozing off to sleep or you see them scribbling, as long as it's not on the furniture, give them a little grace. Because they don't, they've not been trained. Look at Ben and Caitlin this evening. Do you think every bus kid had the privilege of sitting in church on a Sunday evening coming to listen to me? You think... The, yeah, I'm sure they're loving it, right? Dairy Queen's not on their mind at all. But but you see them. This, this Caitlin's five. Ben, you seven? You six? Boy, you you look old though. You six. Listen to me. That's exactly where I was when I was their age. That's where a lot of these kids were when they were their age. So that's why I have a higher expectation that you guys would be mature enough to take notes in church. That's why I would have a higher expectation that you're actually getting more of sermons than maybe the bus kid that has never come to church before on any consistent basis. And by the way, they're not learning how to behave at the public school because that's more chaotic than any place in their life. You say, Brother Andrew, I can't believe you have higher expectations. I do though. I think most of us would. And in the same way, you know what God expects from sinners? Sinning. You know what God expects from the world? To be worldly. And that's why judgment starts at the house of God. It's because his expectations for his children are higher than his expectations for the world. This isn't just a passage that belongs on the uh, responsibility or on the ledger of Israel. You look in 1 Peter uh, chapter number, uh, let me see, 1 Peter chapter number 4, the Bible says, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? Judgment starts with God's children because God's expectations for His children are higher the pronouncement is that there is a judge and there is a judgment being passed and that judgment is being passed upon god's children i want you to notice secondly with me this evening the problem what was what was being judged what was the issue we know that there was a judge and we know that there was a judgment being passed and we know who was receiving this judgment but what was the problem in god's eyes Notice with me first, the first problem was a force obligation. Verse number 8, you'll see this, the Bible says, I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills." I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine, and the fullness thereof. What God is referencing here is the fact that Israel, regardless of their spiritual state, continued to remain faithful with their sacrifices. And you say, well, that's a good thing. No, that's not a good thing. Because at this point in their history, their sacrifices meant nothing to them. It was literally just a day on their calendar. It was event ecumenicalism. It's, oh, well, well we've got to go to this feast, and oh, we've got we to go sacrifice this today. We can do whatever we want uh, every other day of the week, but we, we've got to go make our obligation today. They had turned what God meant for honor into just a simple obligation. What a shame that is. We find here that they had just became forced in doing what they were supposed to do instead of realizing the value in what God had commanded them to do. same issue occurred in Isaiah chapter 1 and God's reprimand of them was this. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? You say, but God, you commanded it. That's why God is not reproving them. For the sacrifices. He's reproving them for the spirit that was behind the sacrifices. Listen to me, churchgoer. Just because you come on Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night, does not mean you're right with God. Sometimes we just do it because it's what we've always done. Sometimes we just do it because it maybe helps us feel a little bit better about ourselves. Maybe it's where we receive the most fellowship and the most encouragement from other people in our life. Maybe this is where all of our friends are, as is my case. It would be very easy just to come to church to shake my friend's hands. But I'm telling you this, that we ought to come to church for a better reason and a deeper reason than just to see people. We ought to come to church to stand and meet with God. We ought not come to church because it's forced, we're forced to do it. God doesn't need our things. What could God ask of us? What need does God have of our material sacrifices? One Bible commentator said it like this, all sacrifices are God's before they are offered. And do not become any more gods after they have been offered. He neither needs nor can partake of material sustenance, but men's hearts are not his without their glad surrender. Here's what the children of Israel had done. They had turned these feasts and they had turned these Sabbaths and appointed sacrifices into something that was just an event, into something that was empty, into something that God never meant it to be. They received no fulfillment and God received no pleasure from them. What a shame. There was a forced obligation. Notice, secondly, with me, here was the second problem there was a fragmented obedience. Yeah, they were keeping the sacrifices. But if you look in Exodus chapter 19, if you ever get a chance, you'll find that there were two parts to this covenant. They had entered into a covenant with God, but there were two parts. Exodus chapter 19 verse 5 says this. Now then, now listen to me here. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, Then you shall be mine own possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So, what are the two two items that were mentioned? Well, number one, that they would obey God. And then number two, that they would keep the covenant. The covenant was the blood being sacrificed, entered into a blood covenant with them. And so we have them obeying the covenant aspects of it, but they are ignoring the prerequisite. When I got to college, I didn't understand all the lingo. I didn't know why some courses had a bigger number after them. I was a bit like my dad. He went to college and mistook English 101 for Engine Mechanics 101. He said, I'll take that. Or they mistook that on his transcript. So I didn't know what all that meant. I know that my mom helped me get my first semester. I got 16 hours my first semester. She went through the book. She kind of scratched it all out for me and said, this is what you ought to take. And I went and presented that to the guy. And sure enough, it worked out. After that, I I kind of didn't know everything. And I remember going to the person that was to register me for the next semester. And I was like, well, it looks like I have this hour open, maybe I can take this. And the guy's like, it's a senior level class. Advanced evangelism, it's got a for it after it. What does that mean? He says, well, that means there's prerequisites that go before it. You build up to that class. you you, you got to take this so you can gain the knowledge to get to this. And then you grow slowly but surely. And after you've taken the prerequisites, you're then qualified to take the advanced class. And And what this is, is this is Israel ignoring the prerequisite. You cannot enjoy the benefits of the covenant unless you're willing to embark in obedience to God. You can't have one and enjoy both. That's what God is saying. You've you've got a fragmented obedience. You think that you're my people. You think that you're following me in obedience because you keep these dates. But your walk is not matching your talk. There was a forced obligation. There was a fragmented obedience. And if you'll look with me, you'll see there are four accusations made. You say, Brother Andrew, this is all Israel Let's see if we can't draw some parallels. There's four accusations made about their fragmented obedience. Number one, verse 17. "Seeing thou hatest instruction and castest my words behind thee." There was number one, stubbornness. They knew what God said. God was willing to speak to them. God had sent prophet after prophet to correct them and ask them to repent. And, and this had happened time and time again. He always warned them about entering into idolatry. And yet, every time we find them in a new nation or in a new situation, what are they doing? They're burning incense or creating a high grove to another God. And it's just a shame. And they heard God's word, but they ignored God's word. You say, this is just an Old Testament problem, Brother Andrew. Yeah, that's why James said it like this Don't be just hearers of the word, but be ye doers as well. If any man is just a hearer of the word, he is like a man that beholdeth his face in a glass, his natural face in a glass, beholdeth what manner of man he is, and then goeth his way and forget what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, that's what the Bible is saying. You become a hearer. And a doer. This isn't just something that belongs in the Old Testament. We've got a lot of stubborn Christians today. We we know what God says and we ignore it because we choose to do what we want to do. We are stubborn. Number two, he accuses them of stealing. Verse number 18, the Bible says, When thou sawest a thief, then thou consentest with him and hast been partaker with adulterers. So he says... You joined in right along with the thieves. And I get it. Probably there's not a lot of people that go into Walmart and grab something off the shelf that's not theirs. They don't pay for it. Uh, I get that. Boy, the other day we went to a restaurant, uh, the new Chinese restaurant down there, Golden Dragon Express. By the way, I'm not getting anything for saying this. This is just a message. I'm Andrew Wolfenbarger and I approve this message, okay? Okay. How many of y'all are ready for the elections to be done? I am tired of those commercials. Amen. I'm getting text messages from girls I never even knew asking me to vote for somebody. I'm like, stop. My wife's going to kill me, you know. (laughs) I haven't had a boy text me yet, which I find odd. Why is it just always Karen or Sarah? Why why can't a guy text me? But anyway, I, I... down at Golden Dragon Express, we went in there one day, and when we first we went in there, I think the first day it opened. I mean, they didn't even have sodas yet; they were buying them from Sam's. Okay, and 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 we were we went in there the first day, and we went up to the counter and we paid, and we went and sat down. And they brought us our food. Well, the next time we went in there, they'd kind of changed the setup of it. And uh, uh, we went in, we sat down, kind of like at a traditional sit, eat, and pay restaurant. But the problem was, we'd gotten used to the way we did it before, and we straight up dined and dashed on them. We left. We're we're getting the kids ready to go, we're walking out in the parking lot, we're getting the van loaded up. And she's like, y'all didn't pay! (laughs) You're right! (laughs) Amy, I can't believe you would do that! Man, I'll tell you what, we went back in there and we, we felt terrible about it. She's like, oh, I know y'all. Y'all are okay. I mean, it's no problem. We paid for our meal. And I get there's probably not a lot of people in this room that are intentionally setting out to steal. But I really don't think that was the context of what God was saying here. In fact, the Bible says, will a man rob God? Ye say, wherewith have we robbed God? In tithes and offerings. That's Malachi. Let me let me say it like this. I, I struggle to understand the logic of a Christian who cannot trust God with a tithe. Amen. I I just do. Preacher said it like this a long time ago, and this made the most sense. You you think your faith is valid enough to get you into heaven. But you can't trust God with 10% here? And if you want to get into all all the depths of, you know, we're not under law, we're under liberty, okay, great, that's fine. Uh, We're supposed to do more under grace and under liberty than we were ever supposed to do under law. You want to get into it, I think the Bible says, let every man give, not grudgingly or in our necessity, but God loveth a cheerful giver. I don't understand the person that can't trust God with just the little bit that he asks for. i tell you what, I'd rather live on 90% knowing I'm right with God than 120% knowing his curse is on me. We have Christians that are stealing from God. And, and, and it's more than just our money, it really is. It's just our life. We'll dedicate time and charities and good things and leagues for our children, and yet the church house is the only time we ever come is when preaching's happening. What a shame. These people were stealing. You know what? We have people stealing. Yeah. We, we may not be going into Best Buy and grabbing something, but we're stealing from God and our tithes, talents, our t- uh, treasure, talents. Time and whatever the other T is—that's not in my sermon notes. So, stubbornness stealing number three. Spiritual spiritual adultery. Verse number eighteen. The Bible says, "Not only did you see as a thief and consent with him, ye have been a partaker with adulterers." And if you study Israel's history, I don't necessarily think this is literal adultery, and it very well could be. But God has to get on to them several times for spiritual adultery. They were cheating on Him with other gods, and they were cheating on Him with things of the world. And so I believe that's the context of this, is spiritual adultery. James chapter 4 verse 4 says, In the New Testament the same truth applies. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? We get too close to the world. God doesn't view it as something that's just a little thing. He says, it's adultery against me. There were four accusations made. Number one, stubbornness. Number two, stealing. Number three, spiritual adultery. And number four, speech that is divisive. And I praise the Lord that several months ago, uh, me and preacher kind of spoke on this many times, but if you notice, God makes a big deal about the speech that goes out of a Christian's mouth. God makes a big deal. And almost every time he talks about the way we speak, he almost always somehow draws a parallel to uh, how we speak to our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's like, I want you to always speak well. And I always want you to speak godly things. But when you're speaking of your brothers and sisters in Christ, you ought to take extra Precaution, verse number 19 and verse 20. Thou givest thy mouth to evil, and thy tongue frameth deceit. Thou sittest and speakest against thy brother. Thou slanderest thine own mother's son. James chapter 3 puts it like this. Therefore bless we God, even the Father, and therewith we curse men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth cursing and blessing. These things ought not be. We ought to lift up our brothers with our speech. It's such a shame that I hear when Christians speak ill of each other. Amen. Somebody asked me yesterday, yeah, but that, I just vent to that person. You know what I told him? I said, You know what preachers call venting? Gossip. Be careful who you vent to. Be careful of how wide you spread your web when something in your life doesn't align well. Be careful that you don't just go home, husband, and, and just tell your wife everything that went on today, and then that way she comes to church the next week and sees that person, and now her mind is, I can't believe you would say that or do that thing. Be careful. Let's build up our brothers. Let's edify each other. Let's be so cautious about what we say about people. You know, throughout all of scripture, I never find Jesus saying anything negative about Peter. He never goes over to John and is like, Hey John, can you believe this guy? He was on the mountain of transfiguration with us and he wanted to build a temple to Moses and Elijah. How does that even make sense, John? (laughs) Yeah, you're right, Jesus. I don't know. And we never find that. We find Christ saying, thou art Peter. And upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Peter, you're going to be be a big part. I've got big plans for you. You mean the same guy that lost his faith on the water? Yeah, because Jesus built up with his speech. He never tore people down. Be careful with the things that we say. So there was a fragmented obedience and a forced obligation. And then thirdly, notice this. Here is the biggest problem. Is there was a forgotten objective. With every sacrifice that was offered, they had forgotten the greater meaning behind it. It had just become the slaughter of a calf or the slaughter of a lamb. They led that lamb up to that altar and there was nothing more meaningful, nothing more valuable than just the fact that they were giving it so that they could go on about their day. In uh, Exodus, the Bible tells us there at the foot of the mountain that people come to Aaron and they say, up. Make us gods for what's of this man, Moses, we what not. We don't know what's happened to him. So up, make us gods. And the Bible says, okay, Aaron agrees. And he says, break off the golden earrings that are in your ear. By the way, that was God's spoil that he'd given them from the Egyptians. What a shame when we take the blessings of God and somehow make them our God. But here we go. We find Aaron say, up, uh, he says, give me the golden earrings. And he makes this molten calf and they give it some type of mysticism. They say, I just threw this gold in the fire and this calf came out. Yeah, it doesn't work that way, but, but that's what we do. We build things up that we can see and we make things small that we can't see. That's why faith is so important in the Christian life. And yet Aaron, they all say, these be the gods that brought us out of Egypt. If I'd have been God, I'd have just killed every one of them. You mean I fought those battles for you? You mean I gave those plagues for you? You mean I I gave you men? Are you kidding me right now? Now you're going to tell me this calf is the God that brought you out of Egypt? And yet they stand there and they say, these be the gods. And Aaron says this. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Tomorrow is a feast unto the Lord. So the Bible says everybody kind of puts what's going on in their life on hold. They wake up the next morning. They sit down and they eat the feast to the Lord. And then the Bible says probably some of the saddest words. And then they arose and played. They had so compartmentalized God that they couldn't even see the wonder of God anymore. They had so shoved God into their little box that... This was when we work for God. This is when we honor God. Everything else is our time, and we can do whatever we want with it. They had missed it all. Friend, you know how many Christians go to church every Sunday morning, and that is their God time, and the rest is their time? Uh, You can just see it by churches that are removing more and more time. At first it was just we'll make our preaching time shorter. But now our preaching times are 15 minutes and we only meet once a week. What a shame that is. We've, we've shoved God into this little box and that's where we're comfortable with Him because if we ever actually recognize God for who He is and what He deserves in our life, we would just sit there and we, we can't handle that. We can't handle the truth that we're not actually in control of our decisions and we can't control the fact that maybe God has a will and a purpose for our life so we'll just keep doing our thing and we'll let God do His thing. What a shame. There is a forgotten objective. You see, we see the pronouncement that there was a judge. That there was a judgment and that the people that were being judged. And we see the several problems, but I want you to see the prescription. No matter how bleak the passage is in Scripture, there is always a way to solve the problem. You see, there are no unfixable situations with God. <laughs> Even God says, cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Cleanse your minds, ye double-minded. He says, come now and let us reckon together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as So You see, God, no matter how bad the situation is, always gives a remedy. And here's his prescription here. He proposes a different kind of sacrifice. See, this one was totally different. Verse number 15, I want you to see it with me. Or verse number 14. Offer unto God thanksgiving, and pay thy vows unto the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. He says that the way that this sacrifice is going to be different is there's going to be a different method. See, this sacrifice is not going to involve you leading a a calf or a goat to some altar. This calf will not, this this sacrifice will not uh, revolve around the shedding of blood, but this sacrifice hinges upon a broken heart. This sacrifice has nothing to do with rituals or your ritualism. This sacrifice has to do with me and you and our relationship with one another. This sacrifice does not involve a priest. This sacrifice involves the child of God looking into the glorious and wondrous face of our God and recognizing who He is. That's this sacrifice. There is no blood to be shed, but there is absolutely an altar involved it's a sacrifice of thanksgiving. This evening I'm so glad that I can say that the only blood's been shed in this church is from people working around here. I'm glad that there's never been a sacrifice altered and uh, given in this church. For the blood that was shed by Jesus Christ was once and for all. There needs not be another sacrifice because all of those sacrifices were just waiting till the day till the perfect lamb of God could come and redeem fallen man from their mistakes. I'm so glad we don't have an altar. I'm so glad we don't deal with fire. We can't even get our fire panel to work, by the way. So uh, uh, I'm glad we don't have to do that. Our Burleson police or our and fire code guy probably wouldn't appreciate that very much anyway. But I'm here to tell you that uh, this sacrifice that is being mentioned here is no less important than those that were offered. In fact, God says, I'm tired of the ones you've been offering. I need a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It's different in method. The Bible says it like this in Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. You see, the problem with all these previous sacrifices was there was no heart in it at all. God says, I'd rather have your heart and no actual sacrifice than a sacrifice and no heart. There's a different method, but I'll see, finally, there's a different motive. A different motive. You'll notice in verse number 15, the Bible concludes in verse 15, it says, thou shalt glorify me. Verse 23 of our chapter says, Whoso offereth praise, and that word is synonymous with thanksgiving, glorifieth me. See, the difference in the motive was God was trying to let them know that the sacrifice was never about them in the first place. The sacrifice was never about what they could do, but what God had done. That sacrifice was never about them coming to an altar and shedding the blood of an innocent animal just so that they could feel good about themselves. All the time God says every sacrifice is to glorify me. Glorify here means thanksgiving that glorifies God. It's to honor Him. I'll never forget throughout my years of school every once in a while my dad would do probably what the... The best dads in the world always do. They would tell their kid every once in a while. Every once in a while on a Friday, he'd say something like this. Hey, Andrew, about lunchtime, I'm going to come pick you up. And we're going to go out to the deer lease and we're going to go hunting. And man, I got so excited. I got excited because I didn't have to go to school a half a day. I got excited because I was getting to go hang out with dad. We were getting to go deer hunting. Is our fire panel going off again? <laughs> Bro Sean leaving it did this morning I don't know if you heard that but but we we get so excited uh, I remember sitting in school watching the clock tick and it was as if somebody had put super glue on those uh, on those uh, big arm on that big hand there and I just sit there and I'm thinking man this is so boring why is this taking so long and you know what the sad thing was that lady my teacher had probably prepared a great deal for that lesson but I got none of it because all I was thinking about was getting to lunchtime. When dad was going to come pick me up. And I wasn't even in the place that I was. I was already at the deer lease. I was already thinking of the big old buck walking out. And I was already thinking about how dad was going to shoot him right out in front of me. And I was already, I mean, I was just there, man. I, I wasn't even thinking about what was going on. I was just thinking about what was to come. And I'm sad to say that a lot of times, that's the way we approach our spiritual life. Maybe you're a Christian that's quite disciplined and you read your Bible every day, whether it's a Psalm a day, a Proverbs a day. Maybe you read the Bible through an entire year. But I can say this as a Christian that does that. I can say this, that I am guilty of entering those moments and just reading it to get done. I am guilty of coming to church and thinking like it's another service. I am guilty of coming to church with no real expectation that something great might happen. I'm guilty of that. And I don't know if you are as well, but that is the type of motive that God is trying to change here. He's trying to let us know how important it is that every act we do for Him would glorify Him. And that's why He requests a sa- sacrifice of thanksgiving. Alexander Sanders was a He was the chief judge of the South Carolina Court of Appeals and one year his daughter Zoe was graduating from the University of South Carolina. She was uh, graduating they asked him to give the commencement speech at her graduation. It just worked out that way. And uh, this man stood by in the lectern and he began to give a story from when Zoe was just three years old. Zoe had he had come home one day, and Zoe hit him with bad news as soon as he entered the door. Zoe's turtle had died. The mom had tried to be been dealing with the situation. She was unsuccessful. Zoe was just distraught. Tears were coming out of her eyes. She was almost incoherent with how much uh, passion she had worked up. And so the mom just kind of passed it over to dad and said, you handle it now. And so he said, well, Zoe, what if we go to the... Pet store, and I'll get you another turtle. And Zoe wasn't having any of that because Zoe understood that it wouldn't be her turtle, and you can't transfer the soul of her turtle into the new turtle. So that didn't fly over, and Zoe continued to cry incoherently. So this came to uh, the dad's thought. He said, "Zoe, what if we have a funeral for your turtle?" And Zoe didn't know what a funeral was. She was only three, and she said, "What's a funeral?" And he said, well, Zoe, it's kind of like, like a festival to celebrate your turtle's life. And uh, Zoe didn't know what a festival was either. Have you ever tried speaking to your kid and you keep using words that are way bigger than what they understand, but you don't know how to simplify those terms? Brother Adam, are you apparently guilty of that? Miss Mary said, yeah, Adam, don't worry, me too. I am too. And she says, well, you know, a festival is... And he, he does it perfectly, he does it exactly how uh, you ought to explain it to a kid. he says it's kind of like a birthday party and what we 'll do zoe is is as he can see the emotion kind of subsiding from zoe's face he says we'll we'll invite some people over some of your friends and we'll have birthday cake and we'll have ice cream and we'll just remember your turtle and it'll be a great thing soon enough zoe 's Tears are all gone, and she's looking forward to this birthday party to celebrate her turtle. And at that moment, as this man tells the story, the turtle began to move. And in fact, the turtle had not been dead at all. The turtle seemed just fine after that. And Zoe, with all the innocence that she could muster, said this to her daddy. Let's kill it. I thought that was, I mean, it has nothing to do with the sermon, but I thought that was a great story. (laughs) Yeah, it does have something to do with the sermon. You see, when we come to church, when we live our Christian life, we are celebrating the death of the precious Lamb of God. And every day our life ought to be lived with such gratitude and such thanksgiving that everything we do is to point honor and to glorify our God because He's done so much for us. I just got a feeling every once in a while we probably fall prey like we fall victim like Israel did, that it just becomes normal, it just becomes monotonous. There's nothing great about it anymore. But I'm telling you, when God's involved in it, it's always great. May we look at our life and anything that comes in the way of our celebration of God, let's kill it. Let's get rid of it because our honoring God and offering a a sacrifice of thanksgiving is what God desires most from us.